0: Let me ask you some questions this morning as we get started. If God is all-powerful and God is good, then how can he allow so much evil and suffering in the world? In a world of many religions, how can Christians claim there is only one way to God? Hasn't science disproved Christianity? Isn't the Bible full of errors? If Christians are so loving, then why aren't they more accepting of LGBTQ plus people? Why is the church so full of hypocrites? Have you ever found yourself in a conversation with somebody and you had to try to answer one of those questions or a question like that? Have you ever thought that if you got into a conversation with a non-Christian friend, maybe with a view toward sharing the gospel or talking about Jesus with them, that you might find yourself trying to answer some questions like that that would come back at you and you wouldn't really know what to say? Well, you're not alone. You're not alone. The Bible anticipates questions like this. Uh, maybe not every single specific question that I just brought up, but, but similar questions. And in the verse that we've been looking at for the past several weeks, First Peter 3.15, Peter at least hints at the possibility that if we engage people in discussions about Jesus and about the gospel, we're going to find ourselves from time to time having to do some real thinking, having to answer some, some difficult questions, having to think about some very difficult issues beforehand. Let's go ahead and read our verse again. I think it will come up on the screen for you here. It's 1 Peter 3.15. But in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you, yet do it with gentleness and respect. We have looked at almost all of the different pieces of this verse. By now, we're just going to have one more week next week to look at the last phrase there. But today I want to land on this word that is rendered in English, defense. Defense. Be prepared to make a defense. The word in Greek is the word apologia. Uh, It's where we get our English word apology from, but it has very little to do with the way that we usually use the word apology in English. This word is not about being sorry that you're a Christian. Um, this, This word is about giving a reason why you're a Christian. And in fact, the word apologia goes a little bit deeper than the word reason that comes up later on in the verse. They're actually very related words in Greek, but where one is just kind of a reply or an account that you give, you could translate apologia as a a well-thought-out reply, a well-thought-out reply. And of course, you probably know that we also get our word apologetics from this word. And if you know anything about apologetics, the practice of apologetics, it's all about giving well-thought-out reasons for the truth of Christianity. Now, when you think about apologetics, you, you, you probably think about deep things. You think about, you know, you know, getting involved in very intellectual, deeply philosophical, or highly technical conversations uh, with people who are skeptical. You may think about having to provide some sort of airtight proof for the existence of God. Or you may think about how to scientifically calculate the age of the earth. Or you may be thinking about how to, to, um, to make a case for why there would be a variation of species like we find in the world without resorting to the theory of, of evolution and, and random natural selection. Well, as you think about those things and those very deep issues, let me just give you a word of caution here before we get started. Christians can get into a lot of trouble, and we often do, by assuming that because we once read something on the internet or we once saw a video or read part of a book about something, that we are now experts in microbiology or geology or paleontology or anthropology or or carbon-14 dating or ancient history or particle physics or any other number of different issues we can deal with. And it is not hard when we get just a little bit of information to start spouting off on Facebook or somewhere regarding things that we really know very little about. And sometimes we end up looking quite foolish. I have a couple of advanced degrees and one of them is in engineering and I have taken more math courses related to probability and statistics than I ever, ever wanted to. And, and just the way that I think and, and the way that I've kind of learned how to process things over time, I am pretty convinced myself that the universe just nearly is not old enough for all of life as we know it to have evolved without some kind of designer. But I also know That if I get into some argument about this with some math professor from MIT, I'm going to go down in flames because I'm not an expert. I'm not. And most of us are not experts at some of the topics that people might have issues with. The good news, here's the good news. Most of the people that we end up talking to about Jesus are not PhDs in quantum physics. Yes, there will be times, there will definitely be times when you and I have to do some studying and some thinking and some preparation. For instance, let's say you're trying to share Christ with someone who is a devout Hindu or Muslim. It's going to be very worthwhile to do some reading and to do some background research to find out something about those religions and, 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 and how this person might be thinking and, and how they might view Jesus from, from the perspective of, of their religious background and, and try to get uh, at least read up a little bit in order to have that conversation. Or let's say that you have uh, a son or daughter in college, or maybe you're the one in college, and there are conversations going on, and the gospel is being challenged by some professor or by another student, or, or, or somebody's just dealing with a bunch of doubts having to do with a particular area. Well, somebody's going to have to do some reading. Somebody's going to have to do some research and, and look up some of the books that are written by some of the best-informed Christians in that area. And yes, even non-Christians, many of whom have written very good books refuting some of the popular theories that are out there. Because those books do exist. And there are a lot of very smart Christ followers who have done some very good homework in these areas. And it is true that some of what people today called settled science isn't really all that settled. And it's also true that for some people, science with a capital S, we could probably use the word scientism, has become just as much of a religion as Christianity or anything else. But for most of us, for most of us, and certainly for me, I find that it is often best, it is good to read up, it is good to do background research, but I find it's usually best to stay away from deeply technical or intellectual arguments and simply plant a question in the other person's mind. And there's very sound biblical basis for doing this. For instance, I know that in Romans 1 verse 20, it says this, that God's eternal power and divine nature are clearly seen in creation so that people are without excuse. And the two verses before that, it says this, that men have suppressed the truth about God in unrighteousness. In other words, the truth about God's existence is plain for everyone to see. So those who deny God's existence actually have to deny something they already know and convince themselves that it's not true. And so with that in mind, I I really don't need to necessarily get all mathematical with someone in some discussion. I can just say something like this. Do you sincerely believe that all of the the beauty and order and variety and the evident purpose in, in what we see around us can really have blindly evolved in such a short period of time in the absence of some kind of designer. Okay. Are you really willing to stake your eternal destiny on your belief that this all came about through random variation and natural selection? If so, you've got more faith than I do. And that's not just some kind of you know, mic drop moment, it's, it's also planting a seed, maybe planting a question. In a couple minutes, we're going to go to Scripture. We're going to look at an actual defense of the faith, which is going to look a lot different than what we've been talking about already, by the way. But before we do that, I want to give you a few resources that might help you think through some of the big issues that we deal with when we try to share Christ with people and maybe find ourselves having to make a defense. So I'm going to tell you about three of my favorite books. In fact, you'll see them come up. Um, You can go ahead and put all of them up if you like um, there so we can see them all. Um, one of these books is about 20 years old, one of them is about 15 years old, and one of them is about four years old. There are many, 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 many other apologetic books out there that are very good, but these are three that over the years have been my favorite. All of them are very readable. None of them is highly technical. Um, The oldest book out there is Lee Strobel's book, The Case for Faith. You may know he wrote The Case for Christ, The Case for the Resurrection. He's got one called The Case for Faith, and Lee Strobel is is the author. He's also a newspaper reporter from Chicago, and he examines objections to Christianity through a series of interviews, first with a very famous skeptic, and then with a a number of different Christian scholars. That's uh, The Case for Faith. The 15-year-old book is The Reason for God by Tim Keller. This is a very well-written, very down-to-earth, Uh, exploration of some of the key issues, and what Keller does is he kind of looks at the evidence as a detective looking at a scene and looking for clues. Um, It's a very interesting way to go about it. I think you'll find it really fun to read. And then the the newest book by one of my favorite new authors is called Confronting Christianity, and um, the, the subtitle is 12 Hard Questions for the World's Largest Religion, and it's by the British author Rebecca McLaughlin who is, is very personable, very accessible in the way that she deals with some of the more hot-button issues of today. So that's a more up-to-date book, and it'll deal with some of the questions that you might get asked today that you maybe didn't get asked 15 or 20 years ago. So all three of those books are great to read. I think I've got them on my Kindle. I can give, them, I can give you more information, or if you'd like to know which one to look at first, depending on uh, where you're at, I can help you. But take a picture of the screen or take notes, and, and those might be some good resources for you. Let me now, however, take you to a defense of the faith that is actually found in the Bible. So turn with me, if you will, to Acts chapter 26. Acts chapter 26, this is actually, as you're turning there, this is the last in a series of four defenses that the Apostle Paul has had to make on his way, on his journey from Jerusalem to Rome. And he finds himself appearing before um, before an angry mob at one point, before some religious leaders, and then eventually he ends up finding himself appearing before some some higher level Roman officials. This one is a defense he makes before King Agrippa. King Agrippa was Herod the Great's uh, great grandson. He was actually uh, ruling over some of the areas in the Middle East at that time. And I'm going to go ahead and, and read the whole thing so you can get an idea of how Paul's argument progresses. So go to the beginning of verse 26, of, I'm sorry, chapter 26, starting in verse 1. We're going to read a bunch of verses, but I think um, it'll go pretty fast. Here we go. So Agrippa said to Paul, "'You have permission to speak for yourself.' Then Paul stretched out his hand and made his defense." I consider myself fortunate that it is before you, King Agrippa, I am going to make my defense today against all the accusations of the Jews, especially because you are familiar with all the customs and controversies of the Jews. Therefore, I beg you to listen to me patiently. My manner of life from my youth, spent from the beginning among my own nation and in Jerusalem, is known by all the Jews. They have known for a long time, if they are willing to testify, that according to the strictest party of our religion, I have lived as a Pharisee. And now, I stand here on trial because of my hope in the promise made by God to our fathers, to which our twelve tribes hope to attain as they earnestly worship night and day. And for this hope I am accused by Jews, O king. Why is it thought incredible by any of you that God raises the dead? To this day I have had the help that comes from God, and so I stand here testifying both to small and great, saying nothing but what the prophets and Moses said would come to pass, that the Christ must suffer, and that by being the first to rise from the dead, he would proclaim light both to our people and to the Gentiles. And as he was saying these things in his defense, Festus said with a loud voice, Paul, you are out of your mind. Your great learning is driving you out of your mind. But Paul said, I am not out of my mind, most excellent Festus, but I am speaking true and rational words. For the king knows about these things, and to him I speak boldly, for I am persuaded that none of these things has escaped his notice, for this has not been done in a corner. King Agrippa, do you believe the prophets? I know that you believe. And Agrippa said to Paul, In a short time would you persuade me to be a Christian? And Paul said, Whether short or long, I would to God that not only you, but also all who hear me this day, might become such as I am, except for these chains. A lot going on there. Uh, Let me just make three brief observations for you today about this defense of Paul's, because this is a defense. And these are true of many such defenses, and they can and probably should be true of yours as well. First of all, notice that a defense, an apologia here is the word he uses, a defense has a lot to do with your story. With your story. You might say with your life. Paul here, you've probably noticed, is giving what we would probably call his personal testimony. He does much the same thing back in Acts chapter 2 and Acts chapter 22 and 24. He tells different parts of the story. To the question that you might face of why do you believe what you believe about Jesus? Or why do you follow Christ? A lot of the answer comes from telling people how you got where you are today. Maybe not the whole story every time, but at least part of the story, of your own story. Now, this may be a very different angle than you expected me to take when it comes to a defense, but part of being prepared to give a defense is definitely thinking back over your life, examining it, tracing what God has done for you, and then learning how to express it to others. So I have a question for you. It may sound weird, but it's something you need to consider. Do you know your own story? Do you know your own story? Can you express it? Can you think about what your life was like before you came to Christ? Or maybe you came to Christ when you were very young, and so you didn't have a chance to build up a big portfolio of special sins or anything like that, but you can think now about knowing yourself. What would your life be like had you not known Christ? And then when you think about coming to know him, what was that like? You may not remember all the details, but, but what happened? What happened? And then maybe most importantly of all, how is your life different now that Jesus is at the center of it? You know, here in the South, you and I are surrounded by a lot of lost people who grew up going to some kind of church and at one time probably thought of themselves as Christians and they may still call themselves Christians. Maybe that's your experience. Maybe that's your testimony. At one point, maybe you thought just like a lot of people do today, that you were a believer just because your parents were believers or because you had a good Bible-preaching church that you went to or because you were a pretty good person you didn't have a lot of nasty sin in your life, so you must be a believer. But then you found out what Christianity really was, that it wasn't a matter of religious performance, but it was a matter of Christ's performance. In living and dying and rising again for you and then repenting of your sin and your self-reliance and trusting in him to set you free from your cultural Christianity. Listen, that's a powerful story. It really is and it's a common story and it's a very relevant story to a lot of the people that you go to work with today or tomorrow or people that you see on a regular basis. Two of the best sermons that I ever preached, if I do say so myself. No, they were actually preached by you, by y'all. I don't know if you remember this, but about five years ago, I gave you an assignment. And I said this, answer the question, how has Christ made a difference in my life? How is my life different because I'm a Christian? And about 30 of you sent me responses and I wove them into a little two-week series where I mostly just quoted your responses and kind of put them in order. And that was tremendously encouraging for me. And I know it was for you too. A lot of you told me that. You talked about the comfort that God had given you by his, just his presence in the tough times. You talked about the joy of knowing that you have eternal life. You talked about the, just the, the blessedness of being part of a family of believers that, that loved you and you could love them. And you talked about so many other different ways in which Christ had transformed your life. Well, you know what? I'm going to give you the assignment again, not to write it down and not to send it in, but answer the question again. How is my life different now that I know Christ? Last week I was watching the stream and I I heard you all singing. I'd rather have Jesus than silver or gold, right? Why? Silver and gold are pretty cool. Why would you rather have Jesus? Think about it. Why is it the case? Spend some time thinking about it. Write down your answers. Because if you keep these things in mind, if you keep your story in mind, if you keep the answers to that question in mind, you will find that they become a huge part of your apologia, your defense. And by the way, this is part of what Peter calls preparing. Always be ready. Always be prepared to give a defense those that will ask you to give a reason for the hope that is in you in the days of the early church in in the days right after the time of the apostles a whole genre of writing developed that we today call the apologies and these apologies were letters, they were written by some, some thoughtful Christians, usually addressed directly to the Roman emperor, and they were questioning, asking the emperor why he was allowing all this persecution of Christians when the Christians were mostly being persecuted simply because they named the name of Christ and for no other reason. And um, they also, these apologies also explain a lot about what Christianity really is and why Jesus is so important to the Christians. And they go into a lot of different areas. You you can read them. I've got several of them I can loan you or tell you about if you want to look through some of the old apologies. But one thing they all had in common was this. They all had an extended section on the life of the Christians. What was it? What were the Christians' life? And they were saying to, to to the emperor, this is who we are. The, we are your most faithful citizens. We work hard. We pay our taxes. We help out the less fortunate. When we're attacked, we don't fight back. We honor our marriages. We're devoted to one another in brotherly love. And it is our reference for God through Jesus Christ that moves us to act like this. You see, these, these writers, these ancient writers knew something. They knew that as sophisticated as their arguments might be for the truth of the gospel, The story that was told by their lives was an even more powerful defense, and so it is with us. One of the scholars that is interviewed by Lee Strobel in The Case for Faith is the former CMA evangelist, Ravi Zacharias, who was, as some of you know who who Ravi was, he was one of the most brilliant Christian apologists of the last hundred years. And yet his arguments, though they are no less compelling in their content, have now lost their force. Because Dr. Zacharias has been discredited. Not because of his arguments for the faith, but because of some very bad things that were going on in his life. Bottom line. It is an excellent idea to to thoughtfully consider why you follow Jesus and even to do some, some real thinking and some real reading, and it's okay to get into some sophisticated arguments if you need to. But at the same time, don't ever forget that your life, your life is the most powerful defense that you can ever mount for the truth of the gospel and the power of Jesus. Okay, two more observations, and these will be brief. second one is this. Your defense should contain not only subjective experience, but also objective truth. Not only subjective experience about your life, but objective truth. What do I mean by that? Did you notice that although Paul was telling his personal story, he found a way to weave in a whole bunch of truth that was applicable not just to him, but to everybody else in the room? Did you catch that? In verse 6, for instance, he refers to his quote, hope in the promise made by God to our fathers. Then he identifies this as the hope of the resurrection. And he turns and says to his audience in verse 7 he says, Why is it thought incredible by any of you that God raises the dead? What does that have to do with this testimony? Well, it does. And then when he tells this dramatic experience, which we, we, you can read about it in Acts chapter 9, what happened to Paul when he was on the road to Damascus, and he tells the story, but he doesn't just say, and then Jesus knocked me off the horse and turned me into a Christian. No, he actually says, he gives the details. He, says, he, he tells the whole story of what Jesus said to him when Jesus said, I'm sending you to the Gentiles, to the nations, to open their eyes so they can turn from darkness to light, from Satan to God, and receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified by me. Well, guess who that includes? Agrippa, his sister Bernice, Festus, and everybody else in the room. Everyone who's listening to Paul make this defense ha- had to say at this point, wait a second, that's us. Do You see what Paul is doing here? He is weaving the gospel into his own story as he shares it with people. Your personal testimony, as powerful as it may be, is not the power of God for salvation. The gospel is. It is not your story but the story of Jesus that people ultimately need to hear if they're going to get saved. But here's the cool thing. If you're a Christian and you're walking with Jesus, your story and his story are going to be intertwined constantly. So it won't be hard to connect them. I remember back in college, I wanted to share Jesus with my roommates. But, but I never really had the courage to directly confront them. And yet, as I mentioned a few weeks ago, I was part of a Christian singing group. And and when we get back from concerts we had done, uh, my roommate might ask me how it went. And as I was telling him, I'd occasionally try to work into the conversation how I got to share with someone about Jesus after the concert. And then I'd make sure to go into more detail than I needed to. And you know, I'm pretty sure he knew what I was doing, but he never complained. I do the same thing occasionally today with my neighbors. Some weeks on like a Thursday afternoon, if I get done preparing my sermon a little bit early, I'll walk across the street and I'll sit with my neighbors on their porch. And when they ask me how things are going, I'll say, well, they asked. And um, I'll just tell them about my sermon, share some of the content of the sermon. Here's what I'm dealing with, you know, here's what I'm going to tell these crazy people on Sunday and what I hope to accomplish by it. You see. If you just share your your story with someone, you may establish a really good connection. But in the end, they can always say something like this. They can always say, well, I'm glad that works for you, but it doesn't really apply to me. On the other hand, the gospel applies to everyone. Because all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, it says in Romans 3. 1 John 2 tells us that Jesus died not only for our sins, but for the sins of the whole world, including your neighbor and your co-worker and your friend. So as you're telling someone a story one day about how your faith got you through some hard situation that you went through, don't be afraid to tell them what Jesus did. Not just for you, but for everybody, including him or her. Your defense can include universal objective truth, truth about the gospel, as well as your own story. Think about how you can do that. Think about ways the gospel has impacted you. Just one more thing to note notice how Paul's audience reacts to his defense. You know, sometimes when I read Acts, I think Luke actually had a pretty good sense of humor, because um, there are some, some interesting sections. But when Paul puts a little more gospel truth in there about how the Messiah had to suffer and rise from the dead and proclaim light to Jews and Gentiles alike, you can tell that this guy, Festus, is getting kind of uncomfortable, and he's not the only one this ever happened to. Uh, Paul had been in prison for a couple of years now, and he was being supervised by a guy, Governor Felix, and he had talked to Felix back in Acts 24, and Felix, when he was keeping Paul in prison, basically, had sort of a love-hate relationship with Paul's preaching. He loved to listen to Paul, so he'd, he'd bring Paul up out of prison, out of the, the, the cage or whatever, to come and talk to him, and then Paul would, would start talking about righteousness and judgment, and says, and then all of a sudden, Felix would say, oh, look at the time. You know, and, and he'd send Paul back down. He'd say, I think we need to talk a, another time, Paul. And he'd send them back down and, and bring him up again later after he'd kind of recovered. Well, Festus is a little more direct. He starts feeling kind of defensive, obviously, in verse 24. So he just loudly and outright accuses Paul of being out of his mind. But Paul, interestingly, does not take offense. Oh, he corrects him. But he, he wants to use this opportunity to press in even further with King Agrippa. And so Paul says this, I'm not out of my mind. In fact, King Agrippa knows that I'm not out of my mind because he knows a lot more about these matters than some people do, and he doesn't mind if I speak boldly. Then he turns to King Agrippa and he says, O oh, king, do you believe the prophets? I know you believe. And then this amazing exchange between the king and the apostle, Paul do you expect me to believe in such a short time and to become a Christian? And then Paul to the king. Oh king, not just you. Long or short time. Not just you. But everyone in this room. Get chills. We'll end with this. But, but your defense can not only include your story and then a lot of, of, of gospel truth generously sprinkled in It can also contain an invitation. Now, maybe the invitation is kind of implicit in what you're saying. Yes, because as you can see here, the gospel has its own power. When Paul starts getting into gospel truth, the temperature in the room starts going up, you know, and people start being affected by it. But if you dare, you can make the invitation explicit. The Holy Spirit might lead you to do that so that you turn and you say, Hey, what do you think about these things? Have you ever thought about what Jesus might mean to you? To you? When you use the second person pronoun with someone, things get tense. But you know what? That can't be helped. That can't be helped. But as the Holy Spirit leads you, you might want to do just that because your defense ultimately is not just about you and it's not just for the purpose of of talking. You can probably tell from Paul's speech here that his number one priority is not to save his own skin even though he's basically on trial here. His number one priority in his defense is to find a way to use this kind of scary situation that he's in to get the truth of the gospel into the ears and into the minds and ultimately into the hearts of the people that he's talking with. And I think that's something we need to keep in mind when we have an opportunity to answer questions about our faith. The main goal of such a conversation is not to come off looking smart or to win an argument, the main goal was for the other person to come out of the conversation knowing more about Jesus, more about what the Christian life really is, and maybe with a little bit of a feeling of discomfort because you have something that they desperately need and don't have. And Peter says that takes preparation. 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 If you're going to give someone a true apologia, a well-thought-out reply, you may have to spend some time really thinking and really engaging your mind in some tough topics. And don't be afraid, because God's got this. He invented everything. You're not going to get outside of His knowledge and His guidance. But even more than that, even more than all that thinking you might have to do, you're going to have to be secure in your own faith, and familiar with your own story, and how your story intersects with Jesus' story. Because at the end of the day, that's the story that has all the power, right? Let's pray.